Hi, I'm Peter Blank. And I'm Larry Logue. And you're listening, and you're listening to ADA Live. Yo. Hi, let's roll. Let's go. Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to ADA Live. I'm Barry Whaley, director of the Southeast ADA Center. Listening audience, as a reminder, if you have questions about the ADA, you can use our online form at adalive.org. Our guests today are no strangers to ADA Live. I am pleased to introduce the chairman of the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University and university professor, Dr. Peter Blank, and BBI senior fellow, Dr. Larry Logue. I want to welcome you both to ADA Live. In November of 2020, we celebrate the 82nd anniversary of Veterans Day. So Peter and Larry, as scholars, uh, you've focused a lens on employment and veterans. And according to data from the most recent national census, as well as the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there are 18.2 million veterans in the United States, and of those, 4.7 or 25% of the veteran population have a service-connected disability. You guys have recently uh, written a paper, Win Pensions and Live in Idleness, Disability and Employment Among Union Army Veterans Before the Accommodation Principle. And in the paper, you discuss a study you conducted that looks at veterans investigating recently available data on the life course and available data on Union Army recruits and the life course and circumstances of their civilian peers. So again, welcome. And let's begin by asking you what, what prompted you to conduct this research? Okay, this is Larry Logue. I'll, t I'll pick up this one. Um, I would say that this is a case of historical curiosity meets the right venue. Because what I mean is that we've spent a long time exploring the experience of Civil War veterans, in particular Union veterans, over their life course. And the venue came up when Peter Blank was um, invited to be a guest editor of the Journal of Occupational Rehabilitation. So we decided it might be the time to talk to readers about where their profession came from because many practitioners may know that occupational research, at least in the form of a public policy, has its roots in the massive casualties produced by World War I, which led to the Smith-Sears Act of 1918. That uh, landmark law made occupational rehabilitation federal policy for World War I veterans. One thing it did was it granted a monthly allowance to veterans with a disability, which is sort of a continuation of what had been done before in other wars. But this time, lawmakers added a first-time restriction for the first time ever. Government could decide that a veteran should undergo occupational rehabilitation or surgery. Now, they didn't invent occupational rehabilitation in, with this law. Actually, it was borrowed from private charities and public hospitals. What the officials meant by occupational rehabilitation was that veterans would work under supervision in curative workshops, like some of the borrowings they made, and there they'd learn 
skills and confidence to rejoin the workforce. If a veteran refused to be rehabilitated, then he, and there was an assumption that all veterans at this point were male, would forfeit his allowance. That is, no rehabilitation, no pension. A similar policy without the pension was extended to civilians with disability in 1920. And that's what Barry referred to as the 100th anniversary when, when the civilian law took effect. So for both civilians and veterans, rehabilitation was a possibility and a strong mandate. This story might be familiar so far, but there's a backstory behind it, which we're going to talk about. The key players in this backstory were the people we call the progressives. Now, this isn't to be confused with the term we use today. This group was an assortment of middle class and upper class, highly educated men and women who crossed party lines, but shared two common beliefs. One was that America was drowning in inefficiency, corruption, and injustice. The other, was that governments at all levels needed to take the lead in solving these problems. Some progressives pointed to benefits for Civil War veterans as a case in point of the problems. They were disgusted by what they saw when government was paying people not to work to get their votes. What was behind this is that progressives knew that pensions consumed as much as 40% of the federal budget in some years at the end of the century. And they knew that pensions were based on the inability to perform manual labor. So they put those two realities together and made an indictment of a wildly expensive policy that encouraged waste, corruption, and unpredictability. This part of the backstory is well known to historians, if not so much outside of it. But for even historians, the backstory stops there, and it tends to leave two questions unanswered. One was, were policymakers in the 19th century unaware of occupational rehabilitation, or were they just uninterested? Another question is, did pensions for Civil War veterans discourage working and encourage idleness? Those questions were where we started, and answering them was our project. What an interesting backstory. If either you or, or Peter could uh, uh, talk a little bit more about how did you carry out the study of disability and employment among Union Army veterans before the accommodation principle. This whole concept for Burton Blatt Institute is embedded in trying to understand the rise of the administrative state, which pretty much began after the Civil War with the Pension Bureau, which was the first major administrative operation focused on compensating individuals on the basis of their disabilities. The basic program of research, which Larry understated modestly a little bit, we've been looking at for, I don't know how many years now, maybe a decade, has spawned books and articles which have tried to understand the relevance of this past major administrative undertaking uh, over time and what, if any, relevance it has to today. And here's what we did specifically in, in this project to answer those two questions. First off, we addressed the question about rehabilitation awareness. Were the progressives just unaware or what uh, post-Civil War officials just unaware of it? The short answer is no. 
19th century leaders were well aware of the possibility of retraining veterans for work. The longer version of the answer is that veterans advocates and politicians took steps to prepare Civil War veterans with disabilities for employment and reemployment. For one thing, philanthropists, especially the United States Sanitary Commission, which had emerged during the war, offered money, allowances, tools, employment bureaus to veterans with the objective of helping them to find work or finding a new type of work. For another thing, commercial colleges, such as the Illinois Soldiers College, actively recruited veterans for retraining, especially for business and clerical occupations. And for another thing, the federal government joined in. At the war's end, Congress mandated preferential treatment for veterans with disabilities in hiring for federal jobs and encouraged preference in private employment. Also, when the federal government created a system of soldiers' homes in the late 1860s, they included workshops and schools in each one of those homes where they could train residents in new trades or in clerical skills. And the federal government and the private se sector collaborated on prosthetics for veterans. Government brought, bought artificial limbs for amputees from late in the war to 1870, and then thereafter paid a subsidy for amputees to buy their own prosthetics. Listeners might be wondering, if all this is going on, why is it not better known? And the answer there starts with the subject of our second question, because attempts at rehabilitation were completely overshadowed by federal pensions. We need to talk more about the pensions themselves and how they worked. Civil War Union Army pensions took two forms. The first was an amount based on the degree of disability for manual labor. If you remember, that's what the law said. The maximum amount went from $8 a month at the war's end to $30 a month at the end of the century based on the amount of disability that physicians identified. And then the law also included amounts for specific impairments, such as amputation, blindness, and the like. And these amounts varied by the impairment and the time we're talking about. These benefits and the number of pensioners went far beyond anything was ever done for previous wars. At the turn of the century, the Union Army pension roll included nearly 1 million veterans who were receiving more than $140 million in total monthly pensions. This was the policy that had the biggest potential to affect veterans' lives, and that's the heart of our project. So we built the main part of the project around random samples of veterans and civilians. First, we had a sample of approximately 17,000 Union Army veterans that was collected at the University of Chicago as part of a project to investigate aging and health in the 19th and 20th centuries funded by the uh, federal government. Second, we have approximately 5,000 working age men uh, from a sample collected at the University of Minnesota 
which was part of a project to create samples for all US censuses. Our rule for picking the men we were going to look at was that we wanted veterans and civilians who appear in both the 1870 and 1880 censuses. So why those censuses? Most veterans were in the prime working ages then. And in 1880, the government asked a unique disability, a set of disability questions actually in the census. And in particular, we were interested in the one that asked if each person was maimed, crippled, or otherwise disabled was a, a quote from, that's the question. So we dug into these men's occupations looking for two things. First, were veterans more or less likely to be unemployed than non-veterans? And then flowing from that, if they were more likely to be unemployed, was that difference due to pensions encouraging idleness? And so we went on from there. Looking at that 1870 and 1880 census, do you, do you have an idea of what percentage of the population would have identified as a disabled Civil War veteran? Very low, about 2%. Really? Um, yes. Uh, and that's an issue that Peter and I are going to look at in some more detail because that's a, it's a fascinating question and nobody's really done much with it, partly because the, the Census Bureau kind of gave up on it. It wasn't as interested in mm -hmm. people in living with their families as they were in institutionalized people with disabilities. So they, they spent their, their emphasis on that and they never published the results of this, of this survey. But it, it is remarkable that especially when between a quarter and a third of people now identify as a dis having a disability, that only roughly 2% did then. But then the question is right. very, very different. And yet those pensions are consuming 40%, as you said, of the federal budget. Yes. yes. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, even even 2% of the adult male population is, mm. was, was huge in a population that was uh, 70, roughly 60 or 70 million. So as you note in your paper, the union pension scheme was influenced by this medical model of, of, of disability. How, how did that model influence the employment of, of veterans with disabilities? We've got to remember that the medical model was only in its infancy in the late 19th century. To refresh all our memories, the model actually rests on the judgment that a disability is a pathology that needed to be cured by expert intervention. So back to the 19th century. On the one hand, the medical profession, that is the experts, were gaining credibility some in the late 19th century, partly because of the experience they, the physicians had in treating soldiers in the war, partly because of medical breakthroughs, like the discovery of the germ theory in the 1870s, and partly because Americans were becoming more and more impressed by expertise in general as the century went on and physicians benefited. But on the other hand, and there always is another hand in history, physicians still faced stiff competition to really become authority figures. Lots of people still believed in faith healing, in potions and elixirs, 
and in pseudoscientific cures like the light cure and magnets that they believed could cure people with disabilities. But still, veterans benefits in the medical model did influence each other, as we note in our project. The evidence is partly from Congress's commitment in um, pension law to use physicians in the pension program. And how they used them was pension bureaus set up panels, usually of three physicians, who were supposed to examine each pension applicant and determine how disabled he was. If you recall, we, that's part of the one of the major pillars of the pension program. But that's hardly a full-fledged medical model. We have to be very careful in interpreting that because for one thing, physicians were ordered to examine applicants, not treat them. And they were forbidden from sharing their findings with anyone who might want to try to uh, treat disabilities. For another thing, officials gave up on a policy that they that they started early to conduct repeat examinations looking for recovery. Problem was they never found much recovery. And for a third thing, officials admitted that artificial arms were in their words useless and artificial legs weren't much better for amputees. So taking all this into account, we have to conclude that any full-scale model, medical model, would have to wait for further developments. And that's where the progressives came in. They were especially attracted, even beyond the attraction to the general populace, by the idea of experts addressing all sorts of issues. At the same time, the progressives accepted the age-old presumption that income support without a work requirement created laziness. Putting these things together, progressive advocates persuaded lawmakers to create programs aimed at work preparation and to downplay pure economic income replacement. So now, with the progressives, the medical model evolved into full dominance based on the belief that expert intervention could overcome almost any impairment and veterans and civilians could be refitted for the modern workplace. The medical model has its own up and down, back and forth history. ADA Live listening audience, if, if you have questions about this topic or any other ADA Live topic, you can submit your question online at adalive.org, or you can call the Southeast ADA Center. Our number is 1-404-541-9001. Larry and Peter, let's pause for a word from uh, our featured organization and our employer, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University. The Burton Blatt Institute, BBI, at Syracuse University reaches around the globe in its efforts to advance the civic, economic, and social participation of people with disabilities. BBI builds on the legacy of Burton Blatt, former dean of the Syracuse University School of Education, and a pioneering disability rights scholar to better the lives of people with disabilities. BBI has offices in Syracuse, New York, New York City, Washington, D.C., Lexington, Kentucky, and Atlanta, Georgia. 
Given the strong ties between one's ability to earn income and fully participate in their communities, BBI's work focuses on two interconnected innovation areas, economic participation and community participation. Through program development, research, and public policy guidance in those innovation areas, BBI advances the full inclusion of people with disabilities. For more information about the Burton Blatt Institute, visit bbi.syr.edu. And welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Peter Blank and Dr. Larry Logue. Before the break, we were discussing the medical model of disability and how it influenced the employment of veterans with disabilities in the 19th and early 20th century. Larry and Peter, two of your findings from this study seem to refute assumptions about the will to work. Can you talk about that? Again, we focus on 1880 because... That's a, a crucial year. And we found that veterans were less likely to be unemployed in 1880 than civilians were. Fewer than 3% of veterans had no occupation in 1880 versus about 8% of the general population. We're, now we're aware that claiming an occupation is not the same as being regularly employed. But the problem was that modern unemployment statistics were just beginning to be collected in the 1880s. They emerged from as a response to the severe depression of the 1870s, which saw extraordinary suffering and unemployment. That depression was mostly over by 1880, but occupation, as, as mentioned in the census, is the best thing we have. So we stuck with that. Given what we found, it looks like veterans were more likely to work than their peers. So that means it looks like preferential treatment, both official and unofficial, outweighed the accounts that many historians have talked about with vet uh, veterans begging in the streets and playing organ grinders. There's a catch to all this. History usually does that too. Our findings also show that what we might call a disability gap was much bigger for veterans than it was for civilians. Veterans who reported a disability were more than four times as likely to be unemployed than those who didn't report the disability. Where versus civilians, when civilians had disability, they were less as twi than twice as likely to be unemployed. This cut across race, affecting African-Americans as well as whites. So we also know that veterans with disabilities were also more likely to have pensions. So we're still back to that question. Did pensions encourage veterans to drop out of the labor of the labor force? So what we did next was to look just at the veterans. We looked at who got pensions, how much they got, and whether they had an occupation in 1880. What we found here was that the higher the pension the veteran received, the less likely he was to claim an occupation in 1880. That looks like the critics were right. It looks like pensions encouraged idleness. Pensioners were also more likely to return to work in 1880 when they'd reported no occupation back in 1870. That wasn't supposed to happen. That shouldn't happen among a population of loafers who were dependent on handouts. They shouldn't be returning to work. And there's another complication 
to the assumptions. Those who reported disability, a disability reported in the census was a better predictor of unemployment than the pension is. What all this suggests is that disability forced veterans to move in and out of the labor force more often than their peers, rather than simply out. And that suggests that pensions reflected disabilities rather than destroying the will to work. It also suggests that people with disabilities want what everyone wants, work at a meaningful occupation. So the main takeaways from what we found, I can group them into two. For one thing, policies for disability and employment were not inevitable. They were the results of choices driven by, among other things, ideology and preconceptions. The progressives could, for example, have spent as much energy examining the effects of pensions as they did in exploring the recent concept of normality and applying it to humans, but they didn't. For another thing, the behavior of people with disability is something to be investigated rather than assumed. It probably should have been investigated then in the early 20th century. It certainly needs to be investigated now. And we hope that our, our investigation begets more studies of ordinary lives of people with disabilities. So one question that I have, because you're looking at census data and you're looking at employment data in 1870 and 1880. Economically, weren't we in an, an economic depression during those years, like 1870 to 1880? Did that influence those numbers at all? I'm sure it did. It had to. But another thing we can, we can keep in mind is that for people then, occupation was as much an identity, even if they were out of work they might still have reflected and claimed an occupation in the census as something different. But yes, the, the, there was a depression, and it certainly did have an effect, and especially on veterans with disabilities who moved in and out of the labor force. It did force people in and out of the labor force. Major predictor of moving in and out of the workforce, that is employment instability, was being single. Single men were much more likely to move in and out of the labor force than married men were. The Depression had disrupted the economy, but it was largely over by 1880, and the disruption seems to have affected people such as those with disabilities and those who were single more than it did. Uh, the, the, the bulk of the population claimed an occupation in 1870 and claimed an occupation again in 1880. So it was, it was, it was a matter of identity. So we've been looking at the past, but, but let's apply this now to modern disability and civil rights movements. So how does the social model that then evolved from the medical model, what's the modern day impact uh, for veterans with disabilities? They're still operating with the assumptions of the occupational rehabilitation revolution of the early 20th century. And there's veterans' occupations and veterans' rehabilitation is still uh, a major issue. And there is still a disconnect between veterans and civilians, a kind of tension where veterans want to insist that 
they are a separate population. And so they wanted, in, in the wake of World War II, they wanted more resources to be put into prosthetics for them than for the general populations. I think that what I would say would be that veterans and civilians still are, when they have disabilities, are still operating in separate spheres. I'm not sure that there'll be much of a change in the, in, in the foreseeable. So that would be my take on it. I have a question for Larry, actually several questions. This, this overarching sense historically and today that uh, people are compensated when they are, quote, worthy by society, which of course ties into, this is the second part of the question, the birth and development of Darwinism and the eugenics movement. How does the Civil War lay the foundation for that and that progression develop in your view? The major drivers of eugenics and Darwinism were really the, the rise of expertise and the fascination with it. Now, the, the, the war itself probably had only a minimal impact on these in these movements i think other than the experience of, of physicians who who gained a, a good deal of, of of credibility after the war otherwise the uh, civil war with its especially with its pension program were a kind of I don't know, a kind of negative reference point for the rise of science and expertise and scientific movements. But the major drivers behind eugenics were the fascination with, with Darwinism and natural selection and evolution and the rise of immigration, which sent waves of people who were judged to be inferior. So, those were largely post-war developments that in, in which the pension program became increasingly a kind, of, a kind of dinosaur that many, many people, including the reformers that we call the progressives, wanted to use as a kind of poster, poster for what not to do. So obviously today we're in the midst of a reckoning on the basis of race, Black Lives Matters, racism. Uh, but we saw that in various ways in the administration of the Civil War pension system. What, was, what were the experiences then of the so-called colored troops, as you're talking about in this context, employment or otherwise, and any legacy of that thereafter? Well, for one thing, Black veterans were much more likely to be rejected for pensions for various reasons, especially since they collected information on skin color, the darker the skin color, the more likely to be rejected. So there was a built-in bias into the system that worked from top to bottom. So black veterans are less likely to get the pension assistance they needed. The other thing we found in this study, black men were more likely to be employed in 1880 than were whites, partly because blacks' choices were much more restricted. When 
black men had a job, they had to keep it. And they, they tended to be in jobs that were the most menial, but also fairly stable. African-Americans had experiences that were different at the margins, but they, they were largely the same in their work lives, other than, than the somewhat more likelihood of being employed in 1880 they were their experience was was largely similar the the biggest problem that affected them was the discrimination in the pension system we've we've written a whole book on it so this is a leading question as well but we're looking at this today uh the incredible stigma associated with less visible mental illness and other sorts of conditions infectious conditions how does that play out from an employment perspective or from a life perspective, we've looked at suicide and other sorts of traumatic issues. But from an employment perspective, we haven't thought of that too much. Any ideas on that and its progression? Well, the census asked us a different question on uh, that. It was actually a series of questions that census takers asked in the 1880 census about disability. And it was, there was one on blindness, one on deafness, one on insanity, and one on idiocy. So those, those responses would tell us a lot, except they were, ex they were very much aimed at the institutional population. We really haven't looked at the employment results of people with mental illness. So what we're talking about here in this study is veterans and civilians who claim physical disabilities. And mental ones is, the, uh, is, a, is a certainly, we're hoping that our research can inspire other researchers to look at mental illness in, in the censuses in, in the 19th century and see how that related to occupation. One thing we do know, just from looking at the, the uh, statistics and the answers on this, is that but a remarkable number of people who were labeled as insane or idiots were still cared for in families. People with insanity were most likely to be in, institutionalized, but those who claimed, those who were labeled as idiots, that is, developmentally disabled, at least half of them were still in the community. So I don't think that we've taken into account the um, likelihood and, and the reasons why people with various disabilities were still in, in the community. We, we sort of identify and assume that people with disabilities were locked away in institutions and the key was thrown away, but not exactly. So mental, um, mental disabilities and mental illness is a promising area for research. And we touched on it, but didn't really focus on it in this paper. Going forward, what's next looking back? <laughs> There's, much more can be done with this disability question. And in the, in the area of employment, I downplayed the unemployment statistics, but the 1880 census did ask for months of unemployment. Uh, 
The problem was the Census Bureau disowned that too because there was so much inconsistent reporting. But I think based on some initial investigation that the unemployment statistics were just inconsistent. So in some places, in some enumeration districts, as they talked, as they call them, in some census districts, the census takers seem to be pretty uh, diligent in collecting the information. So I think our, our next uh, project on um, unemployment and employment issues might be to look at that and to see when uh, one initial look at it suggests that people with disabilities were more likely to have longer periods of unemployment, as you might suspect, but there's a lot more that can be uh, investigated on that. So there's, there's a good long plan of research going on here. Well, Larry, that's a, an amazing lead-in for me also as we wind down a little bit. Uh, the Burton Blatt Institute was just September 1 honored to uh, be awarded a $4 million plus grant from the Administration on Community Living and NIDLR, the National Institute for Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, to study um, a new ways to understand inclusive disability employment policy the new center is called uh, the uh, Center for Disability Employment Inclusive Policy. Uh, it's a research rehabilitation and training center. And, and as a result of that award, we will be looking at contemporaneously issues of uh, social security disability insurance, which has a model similar to that pension system. We'll be looking at issues of unemployment We'll be look, looking at issues of uh, new ways of doing work. For example, in the 1870s, I'm sure you, you talked about it and we've written about it, the rise of industrialization. Well, now we have a, not only a new paradigm forced by this horrific pandemic, new ways of doing work, remote work and so forth, but new technologies as well, as well which are driving a new way of thinking about work and the uh, in terms of industrialization, Larry, or um, changes in the structure of work, the rise of unions then? Any ideas of other influencers? I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but the, the infatuation with efficiency and measurement and investigation was went in hand in hand with these, with, with the rise of industrialization and Darwinism and the, the, the publication of The Origin of Species in 1859 was extraordinarily influential on American history. So there was an industrial revolution, but there were also <clears throat> other ways of working, of looking at employment, especially for people with disabilities. You know, the, the, there's all sorts of questions about, especially since, as I mentioned, that people weren't people with disabilities were often not institutionalized and many of them reported an occupation and there's lots of uh, <clears throat> evidence from newspapers and discussions of people with disabilities and the occupations they had uh, blind people with uh, who were news vendors and um, sometimes very 
uh, laudatory references to somebody who was who who uh, had a physical disability but was a fine gentleman. I think that that there's a real possibility for putting together qualitative and quantitative evidence on disability and employment in the past. And it hasn't been done much, but has a lot of potential. So that's, and that's kind of where my interests are. And I like to combine because people, the, the people act and they make meaning, but academically we've divided those two things. It's time to remarry them. Thank you, Larry. Very interesting. And I always learn an amazing amount of things about stuff we've worked on together by hearing you talk about it. Me too. So I want to thank Dr. Peter Blank, Dr. Larry Logue for being our guest today. And I want to thank you, our ADA Live listeners, for joining us for this episode. We're always grateful to have Larry and Peter share their time and their valuable insights on veterans uh, history and employment. Uh, remember, you can submit your questions and comments on this podcast online at adalive.org. Uh, you can get access to all ADA Live episodes on our website, adalive.org. Every episode is archived with streamed audio, accessible transcripts, and resources. You can also listen to ADA Live on our SoundCloud channel. Search for soundcloud.com forward slash ADA Live. And you can download ADA Live to your mobile device. Search in the podcast app for ADA Live. Throughout the year, and especially on November 11th, let's celebrate Veterans Day and honor all who have served our country in times of both war and peace. We encourage you to celebrate, learn, and share in 2020 the important milestone of the 30th anniversary of the ADA as well as the 75th anniversary of NDEAM and the 100th anniversary of the Civilian Vocational Rehabilitation Program. Finally, if you have questions about the ADA, you can submit your questions anytime at adalive.org or contact your regional ADA center, 1-800-949-4232. And remember, those calls are always free and they're confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center. Our producer is Celestia Razda with Beth Miller-Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marsha Schwanke, and me, I'm Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. Happy Veterans Day, and we'll see you next episode.